0: This is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. This is Chapter 2 of our special series, Recognized. If you haven't heard Chapter 1 yet, go back and listen to that first. We pick the story back up at the end of 2002. That's right before the Vermont Attorney General's Office published a report that would have major implications for the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki. Also, a note here that this episode covers sensitive material, including some slurs. Listen with care. Reporter Elodie Reed takes it from here when we come back.
1: Thanks to Vita
2: for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business – Visit VEDA.org
0: to start your next chapter today.
2: And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. December 2002 This is 22 years into the process of the St. Francis O'Koki Band petitioning the U.S. federal government to formally acknowledge them as an indigenous nation. And it's when Vermont formally responds to that petition. Eve Jacobs-Carnahan was the author of this response. She was a special assistant attorney general at the time, and she's not indigenous.
0: Bill Griffin, the chief assistant attorney general, came to me
2: and said, hey, I have a project for you. We don't really know anything about federal acknowledgement petitions, but you're a good researcher. This might be fun. I don't think any of us had any idea where it was going to lead. In 2003, Chief Assistant Attorney General Bill Griffin told the newspaper Seven Days that more and more Vermont lawmakers were coming to him asking about the merits of the state recognizing the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki. That's what he said led to doing the report. The Romani G published this 244 page document in December 2002, and it wasn't focused on the merits of state recognition. Instead, Eve Jacobs-Carnahan's research and write-up was geared specifically towards the federal acknowledgement process, like whether the St. Francis Okokie Band's petition did or did not fulfill the requirements outlined by the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs. The report argued it did not. Here's a colleague reading from the conclusion. The evidence raises serious questions about the existence of a tribe of Abenakis in Vermont who are a continuation of the historic Abenakis who lived at Missisquoi prior to the American Revolution. The invisibility of any tribe from 1790 to 1974 was so complete that historians, anthropologists, and census takers were unable to locate it. No outside observers verify its existence during that time period. The AG's office also did not find sufficient proof that Homer St. Francis and the other members of the St. Francis-Sokoki Band had Abenaki ancestry. This caused quite a ripple around the state. Local scholars who worked with and wrote about the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki called the report a, quote, hatchet job in the press. One open question was whether the AG's office had a vested interest in the St. Sukoki Band failing in their bid for federal recognition. See, recognizing an indigenous nation means making amends and acknowledging rights. It's not the type of thing governments are known to do readily. Bill Griffin, the chief assistant attorney general in Vermont at the time, told Seven Days that legally recognizing the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki as an indigenous nation would have consequences and that it would be like, quote, creating another state within Vermont. But the AG's office also maintained that they wrote the response to the St. Francis Sokoki Band's petition with no other motivation apart from participating in the process. Vermont's not the only state to submit a response to a petition for federal acknowledgement, but it does seem pretty rare. None of the five most recent decisions on petitions for federal acknowledgement mention input from state attorneys general. There are more than 1,200 federally recognized indigenous nations in the U.S. and Canada. Both countries have different processes in place, but broadly... What they are recognizing is that these indigenous nations have long and continuous relationships with their homelands. And they have inherent rights, as well as a political relationship with colonial governments. That political relationship is, or is supposed to be, government to government. In other words, indigenous nations are self-governing, sovereign entities.
1: Sovereignty doesn't mean a whole lot if outsiders don't acknowledge it.
2: This is Matthew Fletcher, professor of law and American culture at the University of Michigan. He's a citizen of the federally recognized Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. One of his areas of expertise is U.S. federal Indian law.
1: Tribes that are not federally acknowledged, they certainly can assert sovereignty over their own citizens and probably aspects of their own uh, of their own lands. But a lot of that is kind of meaningless unless the United States government acknowledges that sovereignty. And if the United States does, then state governments have to as well.
2: Indigenous nations that are federally recognized govern their own citizens and do things like make and enforce laws and create their own taxes. They also become eligible for certain funding and programs guaranteed in exchange for the land and resources these indigenous nations gave up to the U.S.
1: That duty of protection, that trust responsibility, requires the United States to guarantee health, housing, law enforcement, public safety, um, education, all sorts of things, everything that a government does. And if you don't have federal acknowledgement, the United States government will not provide those services.
2: So that's the sort of recognition the 1,200 member St. Francis Sokoki Band was looking for starting in the 1980s. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, then assessed the application for nearly three decades. This timeline is actually not unusual. The federal recognition process is infamously arduous. The Little Shell tribe of Chippewa Indians of Montana, for instance, spent nearly 42 years in the BIA process before getting federal recognition through an act of U.S. Congress in late 2019. And some long-standing communities who have at times had treaties with the U.S. government are still not recognized. Like the Chinook Indian Nation in Washington, which has been seeking federal recognition for 120 years.
1: The factors that you need to fulfill the actual tests that the United States puts forward are unbelievably expensive. You have to hire expert witnesses. You have to dredge up every conceivable document going back as far as possible for the history of the tribe.
2: Matthew Fletcher calls the BIA federal acknowledgement process, quote, relentlessly bureaucratic and Kafka-esque.
1: It's ridiculous that the, the level of unfair scrutiny that these bureaucrats put forth on these tribes.
2: But Dan Levrin says the process isn't supposed to be easy. He's also a professor with expertise in U.S. federal Indian law.
3: Federal acknowledgement is a very meaningful and solemn thing. It is saying that the United States government is going to have a relationship, a government-to-government relationship with another entity.
2: Leverance is a citizen of the federally recognized Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska and currently teaches at the University of North Dakota. Between 2015 and 2017, he actually worked for the U.S. Department of Interior, providing legal advice to the BIA office that reviews petitions for federal acknowledgement.
3: The people at Interior would say that part of their job is is to make sure that groups who should be acknowledged are, but part of their job is to make sure that groups that shouldn't be acknowledged aren't.
2: When the BIA finally released its proposed finding in 2005 and its final decision in 2007, both reports said no. The St. Francis-Sukoki Band did not have enough evidence to make its case. The BIA's conclusions mirrored what the Vermont Attorney General's Office had written several years earlier in the state's response. Both essentially say there's just no proof that the St. Francis Sokoki Band of Abenakis of Vermont existed prior to the 1970s. And there's just not enough evidence that group members are descended from Abenaki ancestors. On that last note, the BIA pointed out that less than 1% of the St. Francis Okokie Band's 1,200 members could demonstrate descent from an Abenaki ancestor or, quote, any other historical Indian tribe. For the eight members whom the BIA could trace to an Abenaki ancestor, they did so through historical lists that Odinak First Nation has kept of its citizens. The BIA described the St. Francis Okokie Band as, quote,
4: a collection of individuals of claimed but mostly undemonstrated Indian ancestry with little or no social or historical connection with each other before the early 1970s.
2: Therefore, the BIA determined the band should not get the federal benefits set aside for this land's original indigenous peoples. In response to the BIA's findings, the then-leader of the St. Francis Okokie Band, April Rushlow Merrill, pointed out that the group did at least satisfy three of seven BIA criteria. Both the legal experts I talked to, Matthew Fletcher and Dan Leverance, agree that it's harder for indigenous peoples in the eastern part of the United States than it is for those in the western U.S. to produce the required documentation for federal recognition. That's because colonizing countries like England, France, and the Netherlands didn't have the same formalized agreements with eastern indigenous peoples that the United States later made with western indigenous peoples. Fletcher says this makes the paper trail a lot harder to follow.
1: But for tribes that are, in the, especially in the original 13 colonies, original 13 states, they don't have that track record. The United States usually just ignored them.
2: But Leverens says there are plenty of Eastern Indigenous nations who have managed to produce enough documentation to be federally acknowledged, even if their communities had longer to contend with the violence, displacement, assimilation, and family separation enacted by the settlers surrounding them.
3: So the most recent administrative acknowledgement was Pamunkey in 2016, which is Virginia. Before that was Shinnecock in New York in 2010. Before that, Mashpee in Massachusetts in 2007, and you have other northeastern tribes: Mohegan from Connecticut, uh, the Wampanoag of Gayhead, which is now Aquinnah in Massachusetts, Narragansett in Rhode Island.
2: And compared to the St. Francis-Sokoki Band's application, which could only demonstrate that less than 1% of their membership descended from Abenaki ancestors, those Eastern acknowledged indigenous nations could show all or nearly all of their membership descended from a historical indigenous community. In the case of the St. Francis Okokie Band's petition for federal acknowledgement, what stands out to me from both the federal and Vermont government's responses is that neither deny there were Abenaki peoples present in the state of Vermont between the turn of the 19th century and the 1970s. In fact, they confirm through newspaper articles, historical journals, and notes from anthropologist Gordon Day, that Abenaki peoples were visible here at various times. Instead, what the BIA and the Vermont Attorney General's Office claim is that they couldn't find similar documentation showing there were distinct Abenaki peoples in Vermont, separate from Odenak and Wollanak First Nations, at least not from the materials submitted in the St. Francis-Sokoki Band's petition for federal acknowledgement. There is a theory out there about how that could have been how there could have been a distinct Abenaki community in Vermont for so long without leaving behind a paper trail. I tried to trace this theory back, and I ended up at the research of two men. First up, a man named John Moody. He acted as the St. Francis Akoki Band's researcher for their petition for federal acknowledgement. And, by the way, I asked Moody via email whether he claims to be Abenaki. He declined to answer this question. You'll remember from chapter one that, for a long time, the story was that by 1800 or so, Abenaki peoples fled Vermont and other southern parts of their territory to survive the devastation of colonization and moved north to settle in Canada. But John Moody theorized that some Abenaki peoples never left Vermont. Instead, he argued they avoided persecution by living in secrecy. Moody shared his theory in a 1980 interview with the Burlington Free Press. According to the article, Moody arrived at this theory by taping oral histories with members of the St. Francis Okokie Band. He said that people shared, quote, traditional Indian skills, like the use of herbs, that, quote, were identical to those of the Abenakis and Odinak. Moody would not share these oral histories when I asked. Moody also said in that article that he looked through government and church records, He concluded there were names of Abenaki peoples who were supposed to have left Vermont for the Canadian reserves by 1800, but were missing from records in Canada. Moody's theory that some Abenaki peoples stayed in Vermont and lived in secrecy took hold. The reports published by the Vermont Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of Indian Affairs document how Moody influenced late 20th century historians and the books they wrote about Abenaki peoples. The BIA, for its part, called Moody's work, quote, highly speculative and not reliable. I asked John Moody to share documentation confirming his research. He declined, and he also did not want to speak on the record. The question now arises, why would Abenaki peoples hide in Vermont for close to two centuries? According to Matthew Fletcher, the University of Michigan law professor, colonization put massive pressure on indigenous communities to assimilate.
1: The federal government effectively prohibited many tribal religions. There are a lot of people who would, you know, refuse to practice their religion because of fear of state or federal prosecution.
2: But in this state, there's another explanation people have often pointed to. It has to do with something from the 1920s and 30s called the Eugenic Survey of Vermont
5: folks came forward and said we were told by our grandparents never to acknowledge, never to admit that we were Abenaki or had Indian heritage uh, for fear of the consequences. I mean, my grandmother was on the survey. She changed her name three times because she was trying to avert the survey. Um, And that was, she died in the 90s. I mean, you know, it's not that far away. (laughs) So there's still a lot of people that don't want to be on a list, if you know what I mean.
2: The Eugenic Survey of Vermont was a study that lasted from 1925 to 1936. It was organized by University of Vermont zoology professor Henry Perkins. According to a history from UVM itself, the study aimed to reduce growth in the population of Vermont's, quote, social problem group. Perkins also advocated heavily for a state sterilization law that went into effect in 1931. Eugenics, broadly speaking, was a theory that some people are better than others and that you should segregate or sterilize the less desirable parts of the population. It is an awful pseudoscientific theory, and it's something that shaped public policy in Vermont throughout the 20th century. It would probably be easier to list the number of Vermont leaders that were against it than those who were for it. This is Mercedes de Guardiola, a historian who just published a new book titled Vermont for the Vermonters, a history of eugenics in the Green Mountain State. She declined to be interviewed for this story, but she spoke with Vermont Public in 2021. And that's the tape you're hearing. It's so tied into policies behind social welfare, thinking behind how you provide aid uh, to certain members of the community, how you treat people in institutions the eugenic survey lasted from the 1920s to the 1930s. But it wasn't until 1991 that Kevin Dan wrote an article linking the survey to Abenaki peoples in Vermont. Dan is a non-Indigenous historian and contemporary of John Moody. Remember, he's the researcher who said that Abenaki peoples were living in Vermont in secret to avoid persecution. We know from public documents that Dan and Moody were corresponding with one another and sharing ideas. Ideas like John Moody saying that Abenaki peoples who remained in Vermont post-1800 were living as, quote, gypsies. Gypsy is now seen as a pejorative term for Romani people. We're using it here because it appears in the documents we're citing. And Kevin Dan appears to have taken John Moody's claim about, quote, gypsies one step further. In his 1991 article, Dan wrote that among the families studied in the Eugenic Survey of Vermont for their, quote, degeneracy, there were the, quote, gypsies. And Dan said they were primarily of Abenaki and French-Canadian ancestry. Dan did not cite a source for this conclusion in his article. But regardless, this narrative caught on. The Abenaki peoples were studied and targeted by the Eugenic Survey of Vermont. It was repeated and alluded to in newspaper articles, books, and more recently in 2019 and 2021 by the University of Vermont and the Vermont legislature in public apologies for the impact of the eugenics survey and related state policies. And even Vermont Public has been among the news outlets to continue repeating this narrative on this podcast and in other stories. The Abenaki people were targets of the eugenics movement.
3: For the original Vermonters, the Abenaki, eugenics and racial prejudice led to a life lived in the shadows, where their ancestry was hidden instead of celebrated.
2: This was a very dark chapter in Vermont's history. It involved coerced sterilization of the Abenaki, also French Canadians, poor people, disabled people. It turns out the truth about Abenaki peoples and the eugenics survey of Vermont is far less certain. I called up Kevin Dan to discuss the origins of his 1991 article. And just a heads up, the audio quality here isn't great. Can you just tell me a little bit about how you got on this path to to going through the records and um, researching the eugenic survey?
4: It was the laundry building for the state hospital that had been turned into the records uh, center.
2: Dan went through these cardboard boxes at the Waterbury Complex that now houses a bunch of state offices.
4: And so it had all that atmosphere of, you know, real darkness about it.
2: Then... Among the records, Dan said he recognized names of Abenaki families. But those family names weren't from the St. Francis Sokoki band. They were names that Dan recognized from anthropologist Gordon Day, who studied Odinac First Nation. But that distinction, that the names were related to Odinac did not make it into the public presentation of Dan's findings.
4: All of a sudden, it became a, a um, you know, Homer St. Francis standing there in front of journalists and waving some, I I, th- I don't know, even think I had published anything at that point. It might have been a, a manuscript thing and said, look, there was this Abnaki Holocaust. I mean, that blew my mind. I felt very much that, you know, if it had if there had been anything like that, I would have found some evidence of it. And uh, I didn't.
2: What Kevin Dan told me, it calls into question the whole theory that the eugenics survey targeted a distinct community of Abenaki peoples in Vermont. It does not mean that people associated with the St. Francis-Sukoki Band and the state-recognized tribes today weren't also impacted by eugenics. There is public documentation showing ancestors of the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki were studied in the Eugenics Survey of Vermont. And that public documentation does refer to some of those ancestors as, quote, Indian. What there doesn't appear to be outright evidence for, however, is that these ancestors were targeted because they were Abenaki. That's what the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Vermont Attorney General's office also concluded from the materials provided as part of the St. Francis Okokie Band's petition for federal acknowledgement. And Odinac First Nation officials say this, too. We no- We never said... Nobody from those groups um,
5: went through those traumas. Maybe they went through those traumas, but not because they were
2: Abenaki. Susie Obamsawin from Odenak First Nation says that Abenaki peoples being targeted by eugenics policies is just not something Odenak citizens ever heard about from their relatives visiting and living in Vermont.
5: But they never, never said anything related to eugenic
2: practice. Like, not even one person. Obamsawin says there are traumas that Odinak First Nation has experienced, like the traumas of residential schools. But... There are traumas that we didn't have.
5: We don't need more. Because we never lived in hiding. So... This is not something I would like the next generation to read about. This is not what happened. Our ancestors did not hide.
2: So if some families among the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki were swept up in the eugenics movement, but not because they were Abenaki, then why? Why could they have been targeted?
6: So um, I got aggregate data minus the redacted names.
2: Um, UVM history graduate student Richard Whitting has been searching for some answers. Whitting is not indigenous. He's been analyzing certificates issued under Vermont's 1931 sterilization law, which he requested from the Vermont State Archives. There are 256 known sterilization records in Vermont. And from that data, Whitting says he found that sterilization was largely targeting people experiencing poverty. Also among those sterilized were young people who were institutionalized and older, low-income women who had multiple children. Whitting says to a smaller degree, sterilization impacted immigrants, people with mental or physical disabilities, or mental illness. He says he found no use of Vermont's 1931 sterilization law that would suggest it was specifically targeting Abenaki or indigenous peoples. Whitting also gained access to a handful of records with names included on them. This made it possible to explore the family histories of some of those who were sterilized.
6: When we keep all of the information sort of wrapped up, tucked away, we're kind of ashamed of it, we won't look at it, we won't examine the details, we won't put names to the faces, then it, it kind of stays amorphous. And it can be as big or small or, like, used how we want it. It, it becomes kind of like, a, a, I guess, a myth or a story that we can we can interpret to say something about who we are now or who we were then.
2: Whitting's research is still unpublished, but he's already taken steps to try and correct the record. For instance, he joined Odenak citizens in the parking lot of the Ethan Allen Homestead Museum on that chilly day last spring. He considers himself an ally.
6: I do, yeah. So as I learned about Abenaki history, I got to know the the First Nations of Odinac and Wolanak and their history and, and how Vermont sort of clipped them out in their story and said, you know, mar- sort of has marginalized them, really. You know, I think this work I did. I tried to be objective, and if I did find something else, I would I would say, some, you know, that I found something else in it. Um, but I don't see documentation that supports the claims of the state recognized tribes around their their history around eugenics.
2: For now, Whitting's research is more confirmation of what Odenac First Nation has said, as well as findings from the Vermont Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Just to recap, the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki started seeking federal recognition in 1980. And there were a number of setbacks along the way, like the report from the Vermont AG's office in 2002 and a few years later when the Bureau of Indian Affairs officially rejected their petition. But the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki kept pushing, now shifting their focus to state recognition. And they found support from a really important group, state lawmakers. We'll continue down the road to state recognition after the break. After the St. Francis Cokie Band's quest for federal recognition ended, the group shifted focus to state recognition. State recognition isn't highly studied, but it's a growing phenomenon. That's according to a survey of state-recognized tribes published in the Santa Clara Law Review in 2008. And it concludes that state recognition can be a, quote, complement and supplement to the federal recognition process. As a reminder, scholars like Matthew Fletcher are critical of how arduous the federal recognition process is.
1: It's ridiculous that the the level of unfair scrutiny that these bureaucrats put forth on these tribes.
2: And by the mid-2000s, state lawmakers, as well as then-Governor Jim Douglas, were growing receptive to the idea of state recognition in Vermont. With federal recognition off the table, the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki would not have rights bestowed upon indigenous nations, like the ability to reclaim ancestral homelands from the government. In 2006, the Vermont legislature passed a bill recognizing Abenaki peoples as a minority in Vermont. But this still precluded the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki from selling arts and crafts under the federal Indian Arts and Crafts Act. To do that, Vermont would need a mechanism to specifically recognize individual groups as Native American. This is when you see the emergence of the four organizations that you might recognize as today's Vermont state-recognized tribes. The Abenaki Nation of Missiskoi, the El Nu Abenaki Tribe, the Coasek Traditional Band of the Kowas Abenaki Nation, and the Nolhegan Band of the Kusuk Abenaki Nation. Or as we'll call them for short, Missiscoi, El Nu, Koasuk, and Nolhegan. Missiskoi, the largest of the four, is pretty much the present-day version of the St. Okoki Band, just under a different name. The other three are connected through family ties or by joining forces politically in the campaign for recognition. Some folks even moved from one group to another. Between 2007 and 2010, the four groups went back and forth with the Vermont legislature over the process for recognizing groups as Native American tribes in Vermont. They agreed on a method that had some inherent conflicts of interest. For one, the groups applying for recognition could give input on the people who would review their applications. Among the eventual reviewers was a member of one of the groups seeking state recognition, though he didn't review his own group's application. Missiskoi, Elnu, Kowasek, and Nolhegan also asked the Vermont legislature that some of the federal recognition criteria not be included in the state recognition process. The legislature obliged. For starters, the groups didn't want genealogy to be a requirement. Some said they feared their personal information would be exploited, citing previous eugenics policies in Vermont. And so state lawmakers allowed them to use, quote, other methods to trace their membership to a shared kinship group. The groups also didn't think they should be asked to document their community's history into the distant past. And the Vermont legislature was OK with that, only asking that groups have a connection with historic Native American tribes in Vermont, rather than needing to be descended from them. Lastly, the groups specifically didn't want Odenac First Nation citizens' involvement in Vermont's process. Remember that a few years prior, Odenak's government had denounced groups like theirs. And so the legislature added a residency requirement for those who testified during the recognition process in 2011 and 2012. This effectively excluded most Odenak perspectives, like Odenak citizen and Albany, New York resident Denise Watzow, who opposed state recognition. She said self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki groups were misrepresenting facts.
4: Vermont put up the stockade walls, right, keeping the Abenaki people out because they had one agenda. Senator Aluzzi was to recognize these groups.
2: The person Watson was referring to is Vince Luzzi. He was the chair of the state Senate committee that oversaw the state recognition process. Today, he's the Essex County state's attorney. Aluzzi is not indigenous. I asked him about this ban on non-resident testimony.
5: Although... We had a general rule against having non-Vermont uh, residents come forward. We did give them an opportunity to to email and to write and otherwise send us information.
2: And Watso in Albany says she did do this. Letters, emails, press releases, phone calls to lawmakers, even a couple in-person visits to Vermont. But...
5: We could not speak. We found that the in-person... Meetings had been not conducive to a a positive uh, discussion, a positive resolution.
2: Aluzi told me he thought lawmakers did set aside a day for out-of-state residents to testify. But records don't show any such testimony. They show only a few people affiliated with Odinac were allowed to testify during the hearings for the state recognition bills. And they were all Vermont residents. Like Richard Bernier, who lives in Orleans County...
5: I
7: live in Coventry, Vermont. I, I'm just a young man.
2: Bernier is 84 years old.
7: I'm an Abenaki Indian, and I belong to the Turtle Clan.
2: I visited him at his home on a snowy morning. He welcomed me inside and offered me his slippers, then Sisters. showed me some family photos. Okay.
7: And my mother is right there. But my name? mom was a hellraiser, okay, and... uh uh, anyway, <clears throat> her sister brought me up. She took me when I was a year and a half old. But these are all Abenakis, all from Odinac. Odinac. Yeah. I've done a little research too in my time. I did a lot of it. And uh, <clears throat> I know just about everyone that's Abenaki here. I don't want to hurt these other people. I really don't. they got to live too. Okay, but why can't they be fair with the real people?
2: By, quote, real people, Bernier means people who are enrolled with a federally recognized indigenous nation. When Bernier traveled to the Vermont legislature to testify against state recognition for the self-proclaimed Vermont Abenaki groups, he says he told lawmakers there was something very wrong going on and that what went wrong could be traced back decades.
7: Homer St. Francis many years ago started this.
2: This is Bernier testifying in front of a state Senate committee in 2011.
7: That's not an Abenaki tribe. Far from it. Far from being an Abenaki tribe. Here's the other thing. You know, the Abenaki, being an Abenaki or an American Indian, you're born into it. Just because they have powwows and gatherings and what have you, that don't make them Abenakis. You're born into it. You're raised in it. Okay?
2: Also at the hearings, Jeff Benet. We introduced Benet in Chapter 1. He isn't Indigenous himself, but he has worked as the Director of Indian Education in Franklin County Schools for decades. And he testified in 2011 that Abenaki students were getting taunted in school because they weren't recognized by the state. All that I would
7: say, the time has come Mm -hmm. for us to put... This bickering aside and let's do what is morally the right thing to do. This is a moral imperative in 2011.
4: We cannot go another year.
2: I want to pause here and acknowledge that, for the most part, we are relying on archival or public meeting tape to represent the viewpoints of the groups who would go on to become Vermont state-recognized tribes. The reason for that is folks from these groups have been reluctant to speak with me on the record. This has been the case ever since the spring of 2022. That's when Vermont Public started reporting on Odinak's denouncement of the groups here. The Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs did provide me with the four applications that would go on to be approved for state recognition, with some names redacted. When they were submitted a little over a decade ago, the applications listed 43 people belonging to Elnu, 60 to Coasuk, 260 to Nalhegan, and 2,248 to Missiskoi. As for what these applications contained, they relied heavily on stories unsupported by documentation that loosely connected their members to people publicly identified as Indigenous. For example... The Nolhegan application for state recognition says that the ancestors of Chief Don Stevens, the Phillips family, are, quote, believed to be descended from a Native American, Chief Philip. That Chief Phillip is visible in public records as an Abenaki man from Odinac, who signed a land deed in the late 1700s. In their application, the Nolhegan group says it considers this land deed its founding document. We asked Don Stevens for evidence connecting him to Chief Philip he declined to record an interview. He did respond through a public relations firm and wrote in an email in part, quote, we stand by our family's Native American history and the information submitted to the state of Vermont in the recognition process. Native cultures past traditions, oral history, and ancestral information from generation to generation, which must be considered along with European documentation to get a complete genealogical picture. He goes on to reference documentation and records from the Eugenics Survey of Vermont, which identify the Phillips family as, quote, Indian. The Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs approved the applications for four groups applying to become state recognized. With the commission's recommendations, state lawmakers voted to make that recognition official. In 2011, Nu and Nelhegan became formally state recognized as Abenaki tribes. In 2012, Coasuck and Missisquoi did too.
7: And I'm honored to sign into law the official recognition of your tribes that you have fought and sought for for so long. Congratulations.
2: Vermont's new state recognized tribes celebrated at the State House. Oh, And Nolhegan chief Don Stevens spoke to Vermont public about the victory.
5: We have here affected the next seven generations of our children. I mean, they can be proud, hold their head up high. They can be eligible for scholarships uh, in the future. We have now a working relationship, an official legal working relationship with the state of Vermont.
2: The four state-recognized tribes would go on to get free hunting and fishing licenses, as well as certain property tax exemptions from the state. And they now qualified for certain federal benefits, such as the ability to label arts and crafts as Indian-produced. Elnu, Kowasek, Missisquoi, and Nalhegan are now among 60-plus entities recognized by about a dozen states as Native American. Most of them are not federally recognized. Former Senator Vince Aluzzi calls Vermont's state recognition process among his proudest legislative achievements.
5: I don't think these people were coming forward for state recognition for any reason other than that they were of Abenaki descent and wanted to preserve their culture.
2: You can hear in Aluzzi's voice how settled state recognition might have felt back then. To many, it still feels that way now. But for Odenek and Woolineck First Nations, it doesn't feel settled at all. In fact, just this summer, they called on, quote, relevant authorities to investigate Vermont's state recognition process.
0: Reporter Elodie Reed In Chapter 3, we go over the ways that this dispute is still unfolding today, and how it has forced some Vermonters to rethink the way they see themselves and their family.
2: I don't think that my family members were lying. I believe that they thought that it was true. They were just caught up in it.
0: That's coming up next in this three-part series, Recognized. The third and final chapter of this story is available right now in the Brave Little State podcast feed or on our website, bravelittlestate.org. That's also where you can find an editor's note talking more about our team's approach to this reporting. Recognized was reported by Elodie Reed. Sabine Pooks is our producer. The senior producer and managing editor is me, Josh Crane. Additional editing from our executive producer, Angela Evansy, as well as Tristan Autone, Brittany Patterson, Myra Flynn, and Julia Futakawa. Julia also contributed reporting to this episode. Extra support from Mark Davis and Sophie Stevens. Theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Liam Elder-Connors, Peter Hirschfeld, Abigail Giles, Mary Engish, Kiana Haskin, Kaylee Mumford, David Littlefield, Lori Kegonia, Kevin Trevelin, Mike Dougherty, Laura Nakasaka, Noah Marine cutter Eric Ford, Fran Tobin, Sarah Ashworth, the Indigenous Journalists Association, and so many others. For a full list, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening. At a time when
7: information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Through takes you back in time to the source of the news stories
4: filling your feed. Find NPR's Through wherever you get your podcasts.